Please be advised that this podcast may contain strong language and themes of an adult's nature. My mother told me that she will buy me a rubber dolly if I was good, good. And now for the Unsullied with Orica Goddess. Hello and thank you for hitting that play button on today's episode of the Unsullied. So I usually start with something from my free write archives, something that I feel on some level ties into the vibe of the day. I'm not going to do that today because uh, there's something today's guest sent me in September 2015, which I will be reading with permission at the end of this episode. With that said, today I have the pleasure of introducing you to my sensei. Born in Malta. I hope I got that right. Born in Malta. Yes. <laughs> raised in Jamaica. Uh, that was before he became a global citizen who counts amongst his many homes, Paris, London, and Lagos. He wears many hats as an artist, expressing himself through poetry, writing, photography, composing. He's a director as well mind you and he has lived so many lives in one of them for instance his uk hip-hop group called catch 22 that's catch with a k found themselves banned in 1991 by bbc radio one because of the lyrics of their debut album the album is called diary of a black man living in the land of the lost doesn't that just sound like a nigerian album <laughs> I'll be sharing a link for that scathing review of the British Empire in the show notes below. It is absolutely worth a contextual listen, especially when you think about what's going on in the world today and how music has changed and how much more vocal people are. And to think that there was a time when people like this amazing person couldn't even just ask what one, <laughs> like literally. So when I met today's guest, it was within weeks of a friend of mine sending me a ticket to leave Nigeria. This is back in 2015 after I accidentally walked into oncoming traffic. Yeah, that happened. I was nearing peak depressive state and through a series of events, the universe aligned and somehow put me in a cafe in Shoreditch, sitting across from this man who I now call Sensei. He looked at me then and saw through me. It felt like he looked at me in a way my creative soul both yearned to be seen and feared for the consequences. I don't think an entire month has gone by since then that he hasn't sent me a message like this one from January 2020 this year where he said, uh, Hi, Orica. I hope today is better than yesterday and that you're closer to your dreams than ever. Sorry to keep bringing the reminder. Oh, he likes saying, oh, <laughs> this show will happen. You will write it. I will produce it. I will not give up on you. Those are the kind of messages I wake, wake up to from him. I admire the way he isn't bound by anyone's idea of success. He once turned down an OBE. An OBE, you know. Do you know how much our uncles here would pay for one of those? And he was offered one for free. My man's like, nah, too mainstream. I don't want it. You can keep it <laughs> in music his compositions use elements of jazz hip-hop reggae he tells stories through poetry and visual arts he creates uplifting experiences telling extraordinary stories about everyday people in life he's huckleberry finn stylized as h k b f i n n and this is why he is unsullied. My brother. Hello, buddy. I am doing I'm so happy to be here. 
this is the best of things. I'm being the wrong time. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not a gentleman. I'm a crass human being. Thank you so much. I but I like to laugh. I can't, I can't deal with you. Mm. Like, what? I'm sorry. So, which of your many characters was that one? That character is called Prakash. Um, he's actually from uh, Sri Lanka, but people think he's from India. He's not. He's from Sri Lanka. Then I've got um, another one of my make myself laugh character is Robert Nobbins, who is a black Londoner, but who thinks he's a white man. He talks a bit like that, you know what I mean, mate? Because all these black people coming around here taking our jobs. Oh, what time I went to Nigeria? There's so many of them in there, you know. I had to come back real quick and the food's spicy. I've got a Nigerian wife, you know, but... Uh, Foo foo, she sure can't feed me. Yeah, that's one okay. of my characters. And um, I have another character called Frankie Mandeville, oh, who is um, a Jamaican reggae singer who didn't quite make it in, in the 80s. So now he's resigned himself to making obscure um, reggae versions of popular <laughs> songs, such as um, Kiki. Are you ready? Will you never ever leave from beside me? Because I want you. And of course, being a reggae singer, he's not bothered about keys and chords. He just sings what he likes. So yeah, okay. that's it. And then there's me, Monsieur Finn. We're, we're very happy to meet you. Thank you. So let's start with the easy stuff, right, Thank Finn? You. Let's yes, start ma'am. with your origin story. So my my father was is from an island in the Caribbean called Barbados. And my mother's from another island in the Caribbean called Jamaica. They're very, they're quite far apart. My father joins the British army during colonial times, moves to his station in Jamaica, obviously kidnaps some young Jamaican woman and impregnates her Sorry. or marries her. Sorry. Mm. Did he actually kidnap her? No, he didn't. No, I'm so sorry. I'm just making it up. No, basically my dad saw my mum and liked her. They dated, they got married, they had my sister and then... Then they made me, but then my dad was stationed in Nigeria um, during during some sort of conflict that you guys had. I can't remember the exact name, but it was in... Which, um, was this during Biafra times? No, it wouldn't have been. It was Would 1965. It? No. it was 1965. Right, um, right. Okay. It, was, it was like a post-Biafran Wahala. Okay. And then um, my, my dad was then stationed in Libya. So I went to Libya. And then there weren't sufficient medical facilities in Libya, so they went to Malta, which is the nearest base. And that's where I came out. So you were very, very, very nearly... Nigerian. With Nigerian passport. Yeah, or, or Libyan, depending. Yeah. No, 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 no. We, we, we're not acknowledging <laughs> We're not claiming that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not right now. Not not right. Right. No, 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 there's nothing wrong with Libya. Just not right now, you know. Yeah. Because you, you have ended up coming to Nigeria you, anyway you've, you've yeah. married you've or, or, fathered or and... I'd like to I like to call Nigeria Big Kingston because Jamaica it's Jamaica I'm telling you when you go to Jamaica at some point I pray to God it'll be in the next two years you will see that Lagos is 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 Kingston Nigeria is Kingston all of it from the villages to the towns to the sub-Saharan the equatorial all of it it's Jamaica I'm telling you Do, I see I, that I see that and I believe that because um, I, obviously I see videos of it on YouTube, like not the Hollywood pictures or videos, but like actual real people who live there. Um, and also I have some friends, Nigerian friends who've married Jamaicans as well. And when they go and they come and I'm like, oh, how was it? They're like, literally felt like I was home. 
literally felt like I was in Lagos or I was in Port Harcourt or whatever. Like there's there's no difference. Because when when Jamaican when Jamaicans talk, especially from a distance, it sounds exactly the same as as if I'm in Lagos. Like you can hit the the the, the accents, the tonalities, the musicality, the energy. It's all parallel. So um, yeah, I was always Nigerian. You see, so meat pie or Jamaican patty? Jamaican patty always. God bless you. I don't understand this Nigerian meat pie. It is tough. It is doughy. There's never enough meat inside. And it's just like, what is this punishment? Even no, the potatoes I, are sad. I blame no. the British. I blame the British because the British brought their pasty oh, the to Cornish Jamaica. the Cornish pasty. And then right. what, what we did, because we are Nigerian, we added flavor to it. And then we exchanged the doughy pastry for flaky pastry. Mm-hmm. Which is what you should do. When you're in Jamaica, patties are made from flaky pastry and the patties that don't have flake, flaky pastry are for the houseboys because those patties are like, you know, $1 or something. The real patty, that's like $5. That's big people things. Like, you know, hello. No, Jamaican patties for me, on the outside, on the inside, it's like having a really nice, soft, hot, fresh out of the oven croissant. Amen. And then the Nigerian meat pie is like having... A baguette that's been sitting on the counter for four months. Nobody bought it. Nobody mm-hmm. wants it. It's mm-hmm. so hard. You could hit a thief on the head with it and he will surrender. Yes. I mean, you can even use it as a, you know, when you're running around playing the relay and just, instead of you, you drop your bat and just give them one of them baguettes. Give them the... Or if Boko Haram attacks, just throw it at them. Give them the, just throw them a Nigerian meat pie. <laughs> that or a Samsung S11 or something. I don't know, S9. Don't at me. Don't at me. Yeah. Anyways, you were telling me the wonderful story of your origin and I yeah. I digress with meat, meat pie. So the, the short version of everything is I was born in Malta. Uh, I grew up, I moved around a lot for the next four years with my parents, different bases in Europe, Ireland, and then Ireland's in Europe. And then uh, my parents uh, divorced. And so I was sent to live with my, my grandmother in Jamaica. So I lived in Jamaica from when I was four until I was 17. And then um, I started hanging around some ruffians and people were concerned. So um, I was sent back to the UK. And so I came to the UK and had a great opportunity to kind of restart my life. Um, and yeah. And then I've stayed in the UK ever since, moving around, doing art, kind of takes you to different places, different countries. So, yeah. So when you moved to the UK, did you come in during A-levels or was it straight to university? When I moved to England, I wanted to do uh, my A-levels, but unfortunately the Jamaican education system wasn't recognized or understood in Britain. And also I was a year ahead by age but actually two years behind in education, if that makes any sense. So I would have... Stop. What? Yeah. So basically in Jamaica, um, as a 16-year-old, I still had another two years of high school. Mm -hmm. But in Britain, as a 16-year-old, I had one more year of high school. So what did that mean? So you had to go back to year 10? No, I was in the fifth form. Yeah. Sixth form. I was in the sixth form. I came and I joined the sixth form. Um, But then they found, once they put me in the school, they realized that actually I was way ahead of the class in everything. So they they jumped you forward um, again or they just left you in that year? 
they just left me. They just left me. The thing is, the thing is, the problem. The problem with when you live in an all-black country, you you are convinced of your own humanity, and then when you come to live in the West, you are reminded that they don't consider you to be a person. So you're just a statistic or a thing, and whatever it is they imagine, that's who they think you are. So, for instance, I remember going to the careers officer and being asked what I wanted to do, and I said I want to be a director. And he laughed until snot came out of his nose. And he's like, I'll just put I'll just put down carpentry, shall I? And the thing is, I wasn't that I wasn't that familiar with British culture or British humor. So I just felt like, oh, this guy must be one of the simpletons they have. Like, I'll just go with whatever he says, but I'm just gonna do what I want. He anyway. used his full mouth to tell you that after he finished laughing. And the thing that was hilarious for me, um, so the following year I went to college and I was trying to get on the film course and they wouldn't they wouldn't put me in a film course. They said I had no experience. So I said, actually, since I was 12 years old, I was the second cameraman on the national broadcaster and I gave them a list of the cameras that I was qualified to, to operate. And and the, the woman said to me, I don't believe you. Why are you effing lying? And that's when I knew, yeah, you're in England. So I was like, all right, cool, cool, cool. It's no problem, no problem. Okay, okay. I saw this happen with someone in, so the the high school I went to when I moved to England. Right. I was the only black girl in my year. There was another black girl in the year or two above me, Ghanaian girl. Right. And um, just before I left here. So is this Ghanaian girl, is she, is she from Ghana or um, Ghana? Ghana, no. Thank you. Nonsense and rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Finn is doing a do little it. dance. You're doing a dance. I'm ignoring you now. <laughs> but yes. Um, there was another one just before I left, I think in year 11, who came from Zambia or Zimbabwe. It was a Zim. I think it was Zimbabwe. And um, I think that same thing you, you just described happened to her because she was at least a year ahead of us. Right. But then they put her back by, I think, two years. By her age, because of her age. Yeah. And then when they figured out that actually she doesn't belong here, they just left her there. Yeah. And I just always felt like, oh, poor girl, you're with us simpletons. <laughs> Even you really, you really shouldn't be. And that's a shame. So now you're saying that they didn't recognize the 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 curriculum. Yes. Then. Yes. Has that changed? Has there been a review since? No, I mean, it's been it decades since. So it hasn't changed. Why would it? If you come from any part of the world, um, unless you go to a British school, they'll just think you're a simpleton, you're dunce, and you should just pay your fees and be quiet. Were you paying international fees? No, no, I wasn't at the time. Okay. But I'm just saying just generally because of how the just world generally. has changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's okay. Yes, it's okay because I, I got to learn things I would never normally learn. I got to hang out with working class people and that was really cool because I, I lived in a sort of middle class neighborhood in Jamaica. I saw working people from far away or they're in the garden or something. Um, I went to a boarding school my secondary years um for two years before i came to britain and i just didn't understand low income realities and I, I know it's a horrible thing to say but i just didn't because it was not something that i i was used to i knew it existed but i still i always thought well if you're poor then you should just work harder or work clever i never thought there's actually a systemic reason why the majority of people aren't one educated in financial intelligence two aren't able to move themselves up uh, socially um, by either going to the right church and mingling with the right people and getting the right kind of job. So there's all these kind of systemic reasons why 
like a hawker in in Lagos stays a hawker until they die, unless mm. some critical event happens where they can, you know, meet the the mayor's son or meet the governor's son. But generally, there's like a a, a barrier to progress that I was then taught by being yeah. in with the kind of the kids, um, yeah. the regular kids um, who didn't come to school in a fancy car, who didn't fly to London and um, f- to go shopping on the weekend. Those are the kind of people that I went to school with. So it was really important for me to learn that because it, I think it makes me, made me a better artist, made me a better human being. And, you know, I met some really wonderful people who had amazing skills and I would have never have met them had I not had that experience. That's a really good way to look at it as well, because um, I remember when I w- when I lived in England, I I didn't have interactions. I mean, I lived in I lived outside of London. Like I said, I was one of a handful of black people that would walk through town center and it would be me, my mom and me, my mom, basically wow. um, for for many years. So when I went to university, I went to King's College London. I deliberately started joining things like the Afro-Caribbean Society. Of course. um, Going out of my way to look for and meet black people because I started to feel like I I was culturally away from my my people. That sounds a bit more, but (laughs) I just felt like I didn't... I, I, I was so heavily immersed in white culture um and a little bit of asian culture but even the asian culture that i was starting to know was asian culture from a white perspective wow because even the asian kids that i hung out with were whitewashing themselves to fit in they were code switching in their own way to fit in right so by the time i was in university i remember my first year i went literally went out of my way to meet people who were of any kind of origin that right. was not just Anglo-Saxon or, you know, Welsh or whatever, just because I felt there has to be more to different types of cultures than this. Yes. And um, in doing so, there were Nigerians I met in that period who would always complain that, oh, they hate it here, they hate it here. I'm like, why? It's great. It's lovely. Everyone loves everybody and we're nice to each other. They said, no, this town is a leveler. And I never understood what that meant. Like, well, what do you mean it's a leveler? They're like, oh, it's a leveler. And then, so when I moved to Nigeria in 2000 and... Yeesh, when did I move? 2009? Wow. I ran into these same people. And I now understood what they meant. Yes. By London is a leveler and why they hated it. Because here, they live like kings. Right. They had, you know, their drivers had drivers. You know, mm-hmm. their gate man had the gate man and the secretary. Mm-hmm. These are people that when we lived in England, sometimes I'd be the one buying them bus pass, you know, even because wow. whatever reason and, you know, we'd go clubbing and whatever. And and here, I, I, <laughs> you can't suggest Mopo will bounce me at their gate saying, yes, why are you, why are you looking for? Where are you? Where are you from? Already have a house girl, go. <laughs> I hate the thing that this they do here where you go to someone's office. Yes. And you you have a meeting and then you say, oh, I am blah, blah, blah. And I have a meeting with blah. And they're like, eh, from where? I'm like, from from my house? I mean, I, I don't I don't know what you... <laughs> from my, Do you from my which house? company? I'm like, even when you say which company, I'm like, but there's no company. It's literally just me from my house coming yes, to I'm... see your guy. Can I enter? <laughs> you know, um, but I think, you know, there's a little bit of that in what you said as well that... There is that level of of things in, in the UK where you interact with people. Well, depending 
on how you choose to experience life in England because you can live in a bubble there as well. But there's also yes. more opportunity for you to meet people from different cultures and different belief systems. And it does grow into making you who you are and influence your thinking or questioning and reasoning and creation of, of, of arts and things. Yeah, I really appreciate mm. that. Yeah, nice. So was it easy for you making friends growing up, yes. both in Jamaica yes. and in England? Always easy because I'm hilarious. Um, and my powers of mimicry are incredible. So, you know, um, I was a very small, sickly child when I went to high school and there were lots of big, rich kids who would feel no problem to murder me and throw my carcass in the, in the orchard. So I made them laugh. And they used to have this uh, tradition in our, in our school. It was called grubbing. And grubbing, basically, if you're first and second year, you're a grub. Um, and you don't get to be a butterfly until you're like fourth or fifth year. So the older kids used to grub the young kids and I never got grubbed. And grubbing basically, they used to come around with sheets and they would just wrap you in the sheet and then beat you. Um, take away your tuck, your tuck material, radio locker, um, say horrible things about your family. Like, oh, your family's only got one car, they're poor, go away. Cause it was a, it was a posh school. But um, I never got grabbed because I was hilarious. So yes, it was always easy for me to make friends. And I have, I think, a natural curiosity for people because being a young person working in a news organization at a very young age, you soon learn that the world is way more complex than you realize. So even just like an island of Jamaica size, it's, it's not that big. It's not even as big as Abiyakuta. It's literally like Lagos and a bit. And... Um, but it has these kind of various terrains, but it also has multiple class systems, multiple color codes. So there's like inner, there's like inner Kingston, outer Kingston, there's upper Kingston. There's like the millionaire class, the billionaire class, the, the, there's all these like multiplicity of identities that are coexisting in, in, in this very small space. And being on the news team, you learn that everyone has a problem. So from, the, the woman in a small house with her 18 children to the, the man in a big house with his one child and dog. They all have different stories. So I guess, yeah, coming to London, it's like there are 8 million people in London, 55% of them are non-white. And those non-white people, at least 40% of that non-white is from Africa or the Caribbean or Latin America. And you've got, um, pardon me for, for quoting numbers, but you've got 26 governments in the Caribbean, 17 governments in South America, 55 governments in continental Africa, and every single one of those countries and sub-communities have a representation in London somewhere. Mm. So like a, a quick quick fast forward, when I was, I was working on this documentary um, for a Nigerian musician called Tunde Jogede, and he was working with some musicians from Mali, um, and the musicians from Mali wanted to have, they were in London for about two weeks and they got fed up of the crap British food. So they wanted to have Malian food. And so they were told, oh, there's a Malian place. So we went down this street that I've been down like hundreds of times. And then suddenly we turned into a courtyard and then we went into a woman's house. And then we went at the back of the woman's house and it was just random people on random makeshift tables eating Malian food. And I was literally, I was like, rah. Like, I didn't even know that place was there, but you had to speak Bambara or one of those things to actually get into the actual compound itself or into the house itself. But she had an, an illegal restaurant in our house 
formalians. I was like, that's so London. And she wasn't paying taxes either. Pay what tax? Ah, the Queen is rich now. <laughs> she don't need her money. She's fine. Have you not seen Madge? Madge is, Madge is doing well, you know. She's 90-something and she still has her own country and colonies. Leave her alone. We don't have to give her tax. She's fine. When I bought bread, that gave her tax. It's fine. Still to come on The Unsullied. But when you do something so horrible... Why do, why do you, I don't know what is worse, walking away out of shame while this person burns and, and dies or standing there and watching them die. Because when you're standing to watch them die, it's not that you're honoring their death. Mm-hmm. It's like you're celebrating your sacrifice to whatever gods of... of carnage. Carnage that you've just cr- created this, this effigy, this sacrifice for. Because the bit they don't tell you about threesomes is some people want more some more than others. <laughs> So even now, just jumping forward a little bit, you, I mean, you traveled a fair bit then, and even now you you still travel a lot through your work and your music. And uh, yes, has it made it hard for you to set roots over the years? I mean, that in terms of, for example, I grew up with um, this army brat kind of vibe, Um, not because I was a brat, but because my dad was in the military. And I don't think I ever stayed anywhere longer than maximum two years and even at two years i'm like ah, what happened have we been fired <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> normally it's like i'm a month here i'm three months here i'm six months here i went to so many different schools that there came a time when even just making long lasting friendships felt, felt very pointless to me it felt very much like i'm not going to as soon as i get to know you and start to remember your your last name and what your favorite thing is that you like it'll be time for me to go again so why should i invest right. that much into into this friendship because and there were no emails back then so um i don't want to be in a different country or different state missing somebody that i'm never going to see or speak to again did you did you find that, that that a part of you withdrew from people that way or did you just literally immerse yourself every single moment and experience everything that you had knowing that come next week i might have to move again um, the third, the, I choose the third option, which is I learned how to get on with people. So wherever I went, um, I would find out what you like, what you don't like, uh, your favorite food, your favorite music. And then I would just store that in my memory bank of our friendship. And then when we parted or whatever, then, you know, that that's me. But I found that this whole moving around a lot thing puts my character on reserve, puts it on a kind of back burner. So that like, I'm always in safe mode. Mm. I'm never like fully me kind of thing. Safe mode is a PC term. Um, <laughs> minimal graphics. <laughs> minimal. But um, yeah, so because how do you explain to someone who's lived on the same street their entire life that you've seen the sunrise on Reunion Island, coming, the sun coming up over a volcano in Reunion Island, or you once um, swam with dolphins in the Maldives, or um, you were dancing to Yoruba music in the middle of the carnival in, in, in Bahia, or in Salvador, one of those places. It's like, these are not normal conversations you can have because they seem as if you're trying to place yourself above others, that you're making your life experience more valuable than theirs. And in kind of groupthink scenarios, you can't, individuality is a threat. So you learn that very early on. Now, nah, I'm just going to get on with whatever you guys are doing. As long as it's not illegal, it's not going to harm me. I'm good. So that's kind of, I chose the third option, which is 
to get on with everyone and never letting anyone get on with me. So with you, it was it's more important to have little vignettes of your life and your life with people. And you sort of store them in like little memory jars, as it were. Yeah. I like that, actually. I don't know why I never did that. I know why. Because I used to, I, I, I miss things. Right. When they're not there. Right. Especially when I've really created a, because I find that, I can honestly say now that I'm a little bit older. Yes. Um, I don't have a lot of really close friends. And so when I make friends, not just like acquaintances, but like true friends. Yes. I find that I want to hold on to you. Right. I find that no matter how far away we are in terms of physical distance or maybe we're fighting, so emotionally we're distant. Yes. I will still want to show up for you and go to bat for you. And so... Just being able to to do that, and then I don't know. I just I I don't have room for for strangers and vignettes because I'm a bit of a sponge. So if I meet you, I immediately get invested in you. Right. And to then be yanked away from that, especially as a teenager, to constantly be yanked away from things that I was sort of drawing some kind of attachment to, it's just like yeah, no, mm, no. You know what? I'm not doing this anymore. Fuck it. Keep it. I don't want it. The universe, God, whichever terminology you want to use, trained me to be me, I guess. And my path was unique because I went to Jamaica as an English child. I didn't go to Jamaica as a Jamaican. And so immediately the first conflict was you're different. So children, they were like, you don't talk like us. You don't look like us. You know, look at your nose. I mean, there was a joke they used to say like, um, one island, one part of Jamaica is called Portland and then the other part is called Westmoreland. And it goes like your nose one, one nostrils in Westmoreland and one nostrils in Portland. That kind of like child joke. Um, but I was, I, don't worry, I was a really good. I used to give way better and to, to the fact where it became like, I became known as having an acerbic tongue. I think the teacher once called me, um, said, said that I had, because I think I made some guy cry because I said, he said, oh, my mother wakes up in the morning and goes home. And I said, your mother has environment flows in her privates. And, and I was like 12. I was like, you know, but we were at boarding school where it's very brutish. I'm sure your boarding school friends will tell you it's very brutal. When when the adults are not around, the gloves come off. And but what I'm saying is, so being being a, a foreign child in an in an island culture, specifically an island that's part of a slaveocracy, an island that has multiple histories to do with treatment or ill treatment of Africans, the formation of the kind of Jamaican identity is rooted in resistance. So if you can't resist the resistors, then you're going to get crushed. So the thing was really hilarious, I think, about Jamaicans are they exactly the same as Nigerians, where you send a Nigerian to Oslo in Norway and everyone on that street will start talking with a slight Nigerian accent because he's not changing, you're changing. And that's how Jamaicans are. We don't change. We just go and we're just being. And I remember even I had an incident once where I wanted to go to ShopRite in the Kedja um, and I was walking, I left the house and I walked to, to ShopRite because I had just enough money to buy what I wanted, but not enough money to get an Uber or get even one of the local buses. So I'm walking there and I'm walking back. And my 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 wife had like a conniption. She like almost had a meltdown because she's like, you can't walk on the street in Nigeria. And I'm like, I'm Jamaican, don't afraid of nobody because it's love I bring, I don't bring violence. And of course, halfway down the road, by the time we got to, I can't remember what that roundabout is called, we got to this roundabout and then some guys jumped out of a car 
like about three burly, like heavy Nigerian men, possibly gay, but they all jumped out of a car. Um, one guy, like his shoulder looked like it needed his own shirt. Um, and they kind of run up to me and then they were like, Oga, blah, 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 blah. Do you want to buy foreign exchange? And then I took one step into his personal space and I said to him very gently, I don't have a cobble. And then they all look kind of confused. Like, is this guy Mads or is he poor? <laughs> and then they just go back in their car. And then they realize he's poorly mad. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Now, obviously, it's the combination of events and the humanity of those men that allowed me to continue living. But it's just that my Jamaicanness does not, my training in Jamaica does not allow me to bend or, or, or break or, or, or give in to scenarios because of the scenario that I'm in. I'm like, I'm not giving up. And I've got a million stories of like near-death experiences and this, that, and a third of things that have happened, but simply because I had that essential training that gave me the grounding in myself, but also understood that other people are not as gifted. If I was good, good, good. Going back to your um to your question, um I found it I found it useful to just not say certain things. Um, can I, can I give you a really small example? Yes, please. So I once, uh, I have a trio and we performed in France at a festival called Jazz à Vienne. It's there. What's, what's the name of the trio? HKB Finn Trio. I have many ensembles. Um, so there's HKB Finn Ensemble, which means everyone's playing. Then HKB Finn Trio, which means just three of us. Quartet, quintet, septet, whatever. Anyway, so we do this concert in Paris, in in Vienne, in France, and Jazz of Vienne is a jazz festival that's in an amphitheater that holds around eight thousand people. They used to kill Christians there, but now they play music. And um, back in the day, and um, so. <laughs> I, I love that you add that as an addendum. <laughs> as in, it's not like you know we play music Monday through to Saturday, yeah. and then on Sundays the Christian gets together and purge the yeah, hall yeah. by killing people. Yeah. So, no, okay. so we, I played this concert. It's amazing. I come off stage. Um, I sold like forty-eight CDs, like in about five seconds. I had all this money in my pocket. I walked down the hill from the festival because I actually was doing a support for a guy called Marcus Miller, and I'm a huge Marcus Miller fan. Um, so much so that when I was doing my sound check, he was standing on the side of the stage looking at me and he's like, man, that music's different. Where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from London. And he kind of looked at me like, oh, okay, okay. So anyway, um, I did I did a really good show. I think I did a good show. Um, I'm walking down the hill to my hotel because um, I want to stay for the Marcus Miller concert, which is too much sugar for me, you know. Um, and I walk past some restaurant and, and everyone's shouting, Finn! And they're waving at me. And because what I hadn't realized was the concert was broadcast live on national TV across France. So the, the next concert I did the following day was in a very, very small town called uh, Manosque, which is in the south of France. And Manosque is literally like a village within a village. In fact, if you think of a small house with six people in it, that's Manosque. It's so small. So anyway, I played there and they were like, Finn, Finn. And then when I got the flight back to the UK, um, I got jumped, I got bumped up to like first class on British Airways. Because the, the woman in the in the at the desk, she looked over and she saw me and she called me forward and she goes, Oh yeah, we, we upgraded you and yada yada. I was only an hour's flight, but it's still great. So and then I come out, and this is how effective this thing was. I come out and then I'm talking to this French guy who was on the flight, 
And then he's like, oh, I'm going into London. Would you like a lift? I'm like, cool. Could have been serial kill, but it's cool. Going a lift. He gave me a lift to my house. And then I go into my house and I'm like, oh my God, that was one of the most wondrous experiences I had. I thought I'm going to change these euros into pounds now. And then as I'm coming out of my house, a friend popped by and he's like, oh man, I've got to tell you something. So I'm like, oh, what's happening? He goes, oh, basically he got a new bicycle and it's really wicked and I should come around and look at it. And he goes, oh, what have you been up to this weekend? And then I thought, and then I said, ah, nothing. Like, so why should I take away his happiness of having a new bicycle and tell him about the near superstar experience I had for the last 48 hours? It just seemed cruel. So I'm silent because I'm thinking about the times when something amazing has happened in my life. Mm -hmm. And I've run up to tell somebody or share it with someone. And I'm trying to think if there are instances where somebody else thought their joy was more important in that moment than me sharing whatever stupid thing I'm coming to, to share with them. Right. I hope not. But you're very, you're very, you're very loving and warm and buoyant person. So I can't see anyone hating on you for telling them that, you know. No, you... but it won't be hate though. It would be because we're all so caught up in our own whatever it is we're going through yeah and sometimes we say that we don't see people when they're suffering and they need help yes but with what you're saying now i feel that i need to challenge myself more because it doesn't matter that i'm able to recognize that someone's hurting and they need a hand mm -hmm. if when they're happy i am not there to listen to their happiness and share their joy because yes. i think yeah, yeah, your bike is cool and everything, but look, I just had this amazing celebrity experience and I got bumped up to first class and, 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 and four hours later, I'm going on about the experience I had. Yeah. And this person is like, so I'm just going to go off with my bike now. Right. I don't know. I wonder if I do that. I think you would. Life. I think you would. I just think I'm more extreme because I deliberately keep quiet about certain successes, certain experiences I have because I don't want to belittle others because I understand that living in a kind of uh, capitalist commercial uh, reality makes everyone competitors with each other. And it kind of distances you from the possibilities of joy. And one of the wonderful things I learned, like going to, to school in London is like people like to laugh and people like to have those kind of bonds. And it's so easy to disrupt it with something negative and cruel because the world we live in doesn't really make much space for us anyway. We have to create those spaces. So like, why am I now going to create a negative space between someone that I care about? It just seems like I'm not fully managing myself. And I think that's, I think that's the only thing that separates middle-classness from working-classness is the ability to manage because most middle-class people are taught from birth how to manage finance, emotions, family, um, other people, expectations. It's just like your whole life is just, you're just learning management skills all the time. You speak differently, you phrase things differently. Most, everyone else, working class, upper class people, they can say what they want, whenever they want, however they want. And it's that privilege. It's, you understand? But the people in the middle, mm, not so much. Nobody wants to hear about, the gate man doesn't want to hear about your, your traffic problems. Do you know what I mean? It's like, he's going to have to get like public transport home or probably walk in some shoes with many holes that's got little cardboard in the sole. Anybody want to hear your problems? It's, but it's not, it's not that reality. It's just that ideology. It's no, I, I understand. Yeah. But then um, quick question in relating to what you said. So, People say things like, oh, you know, don't hang out with that person because he's a misery gut and misery likes company. And so, you know, when you're around people who are down in the dumps, they attract negative 
energy of people who are also down in the dumps and feeling miserable because like i said misery likes company yes but surely there's there's room for other things that likes company as well success likes company yes that's why some rich people only hang out with other rich people because you don't want to be the one who's constantly paying the the tab for all of your broke friends (laughs) you know um joy likes company and i i could go on so i'm wondering in that moment when you and and again i'm just using this example you used earlier but in that moment when you chose to celebrate this person's bicycle Mm -hmm. instead of share your amazing news Mm -hmm. is there a part of you that thinks that maybe you you robbed that person of a chance to share in the company of your joy as well no because if that person was able to enjoy my company, he'd probably be on stage with me or probably be in the crew or probably be pursuing the thing that he pursues and not finding um, joy in obtaining a little piece of equipment that really has got nothing to do with humanity or his soul. But he was just so, you know, because you don't know what people are going through. You don't know what people, what baggage they're carrying. You don't know the histories. So I can't assume that me telling you something good, especially in a city called like London, where um, it it requires so much mental energy. Like for me, Lagos is very emotional. It's a very emotional place. Um, you you drive down the street ten times in a week, and on the ninth time, some something crazy happens, and now you can't drive because you're just sitting in the car or you're trying to. Do you know what I mean? But it it, it taxes your emotions but it doesn't tax your soul. It doesn't tax your spirit. You just think it does until you come somewhere like London where they've got all the tech and all the buildings and all the facilities, and yet people are absolutely miserable. Now, so so I guess um, understanding how like London works and understanding how people are, um, and even just understanding that person in particular who we're not really friends anymore because he later, that same guy um, said that I was changing when I went to film school. So basically what happened was I come from London. I mean, I come from Jamaica, I moved to London. I go to school, I go to college. Um, I then start working because I couldn't find work as a film person because nobody in my family was in the film business. And that's kind of how the film business was in the eighties and nineties. And so I, you know, I did other kinds of work. I got into music, um, writing and performing. So I was doing that and I was, Okay, this, so this is a true story. I don't mean to embarrass my family, but this is a fact. So um, my dad gets a letter. No, let me start at the beginning. The art teacher from my school, I'd only been at the school for a few weeks, and the art teacher said, your work is amazing. You're astounding. I've never seen anyone who can draw and paint and this and that and yada, 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 yada. Um, and he's like, I want to put you up for this scholarship. So he, I'm like, okay. So he puts me up for a scholarship. I win the scholarship. I'm awarded an enormous sum of money, enormous. So my dad, the soldier dad, is then gets a letter from the univer- gets a letter from the school who says, please come, we need to talk to you about your son. So my dad comes to the school, I go to the meeting, come out of class, and then he was like, yeah, what's happening? And um, they said, okay, so basically your son's a really talented artist 
And we want to give him this money so he can go to college, university, and do his postgraduate work. Obviously, he has to live, so that's why the money is such a considerable amount of money. We just need you to sign for the check, and um, you can take the check. And you know, you have to manage. You'll have to manage it over the years while he's studying um, until he's of age eighteen. So you know, blah 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 blah. My dad says, "Nah, keep the check because my son is not going to grow up to be a gay." And then my dad gets up and says. Don't call me back to this place for no foolishness. And then he leaves. So a part of me was kind of angry. So like I joined like a reggae band and a hip hop band and I'll call myself Hunt Kill Berry. And I'm like American MCs and I'm, you know, I'm terrible lyricist and all of that good stuff. And then I'm doing my hip hop stuff. And I remember um, performing to like thousands of white people with songs from Diary of a Black Man Living in the Land of the Lost where we're singing about black pain in London and it's only white people that's turning up at the concert. So I'm like, kind of altered realities is like, I don't understand. Where's the black people? Like, this this, this is about us, for us. Who the hell are you guys? <laughs> so like, I'd be going to like, I'd be like in Switzerland and, and, and they'd be singing the songs. I'd be in like Germany, they're singing the songs. And 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 it really put me into conflict. And so I remember, and this is a really important story. I'm sorry for prattling on, but it's a really important story. So I remember we had this 60-day tour of like Europe. So we like Switzerland and France and, and Germany and Italy and all these other places. We drive around this tour bus and people like smoking blunts and looking at porn videos. And I'm like, why am I here? What's, why is this happening? And then the other thing is what that had happened to me was it was the first time that I'd been away from London for that period of time. So the first conflict that I had was, who am I? Because not being in London meant I couldn't go to my local chip shop, I couldn't go to my local chicken shop, I couldn't go to um, Blockbuster Video, I couldn't go to the West End in London, I couldn't go see my friends, I couldn't, um, you know, chirps girls and stuff, whatever, go to the library, go to the, I used to walk from my place um, about 20 minutes and then I'd be in Pimlico, and I could go take Britain, could take Modern wasn't built yet. Um, I could visit all these things that are part of my personality that I lean upon to be me. But now they're all gone. So the, the thing so that you used to self-identify suddenly was, well, what? Really? What was it? What? Because even your music, which would have been part of your identity, you're looking out. <laughs> I'm singing Black Pain and white people sing about the chorus with passion, like, yeah, I feel unique. I'm like, I'm with your side. <laughs> so like, I'm having this enormous crisis. I describe it as my first breakdown. And it's a completely quiet breakdown. It's a breakdown with no pills, no episodes, no straight jackets. I'm just very stoic. I'm sitting there, my face is like, yeah, everything is fine. But internally, I'm like, ah, <laughs> right? And then I'm like, who are you? Because, are you Jamaican? Because you've been in London longer than you're in Jamaica. So are you still Jamaican? Um, do you eat Jamaican food? Do you practice the culture? Do you do you recognize some of the traditions? Do you spill water before you say an elder's neck? There's a whole bunch of stuff. Do you do you sing the national anthem? Do you know the national pledge anymore? But then even doing all those things, does that really make you Jamaican? Or does that just make you someone who does things? It doesn't. It's, I'm just someone who does things. So, so I had this enormous crisis while I'm on the road for 60 days with, with people who I thought was in the same band. I thought we were a group and I realized we weren't a group. We were just a bunch of guys who liked to make music. 
and I was one of them and we didn't know each other at all because I'm like, why are you watching anal porn when there's loads of vaginal porn that you could be watching? And why are we watching porn 16 guys in a bus? Like, cause it was like three bands. So it was like, um, no, it was four bands. It was two hip hop groups and two rock bands, two metal bands. So it was kind of like a rap metal kind of tour. And we were playing like... And it's interesting how people just casually playing porn when there's people walking up and down and eating on the tour bus. And then, and then, and then the food was crap. And then everywhere we went, and I think like one of the first tour stops, some girl was raped. And by nobody, wasn't me, and it wasn't the DJ because we were in the same room together. So I knew he didn't get up. But anyway, that's a whole other story. And then I was just in this enormous crisis where I'm like, I don't know who I am because I can't be a person because of racism. That cannot be why I'm black. I can't be a person because of where I live. I have to be a person because of who I am. So who the hell are you? So one of the things I had to process before that tour ended was the fact that I had nurtured this whole personality and this whole lifestyle based simply upon the fact that I was angry at my father for turning down 50,000 pounds in 1983. That could have changed his son's life and I would have been the world's greatest director by now because I could have gone to actual film school. And then I was like, yeah, but you can go off school now. You don't need this permission. You could just sign up. So what's your malfunction? Like, who are you angry at? Look at all the crap that you've learned. You learn how to write songs. You learn the difference between a C and a D, D, D note. Um, you've, you've done these countless events. You've been to parts of the UK that most British people never even learn about. Um, so, and you, you got to see Europe. And I got to see Europe just after the fall of um, the, the, the Berlin Wall. So we were like playing in places where they had not seen, they'd only seen American um, soldiers. They'd never seen just regular musicians because nobody was allowed to go back there. So there's all these things that happened, but nonetheless, I decided on the tour, I'm going to film school. I'm going to film school. I'm going to sign up. And so I signed up. I went to film school and within three months of going to film school, all my hip hop and nightclub friends and DJ friends, including Bicycle Guy, were like, you're chatting weird you're talking strange, you're using big words, mm, don't really like you no more, can't hang out with you, you need to done that college thing and just come be with Mandem and hang out on housing estate. And Your dreams your dreams and your ambition became um, an inconvenience is, is even what I would say, yeah. A threat to their way of life. I even had one, one really good friend, yeah. I had one friend um, who... Um, used to love the music. And I think once we had a we had a track and he had like a distorted guitar in it and she just thought I was satanic and I'm going to hell and all this good stuff and yada, 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 yada. So it was, it's a real, it was a real um, eye opener. And it's when I began to accept myself as an eternal African as averse to a political African or someone who is based in some sort of tribal consciousness that actually my 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 DNA is from a part of the world where people have my hue and it's okay to just be. It's okay. Like as Muta Baruka, the, the great Jamaican poet said, if you took a pig, no, if you took a cow and you put the cow with pigs and the cow lived with pigs for years, is it still not a cow? At what point does the cow become a pig because it's living with pigs? So at what point do I stop being African because I don't live in Africa? So that was that was my mentality. That was my that's that became the the root point for my identity and also my outlook. And because 
simply like living in somewhere like Jamaica where we have two economies. We have the working economy and then we have extreme poverty. And when you see extreme poverty, you see people who like, who have been molested mentally, emotionally, sexually, just you see some of the worst abuse, some of the worst crimes against the body that you can ever imagine. Like necklacing was like a thing, you know, I don't know if you know what that is and I hope you don't. Do you know what necklacing is? Um, why does it sound like getting a pearl necklace? No, it's like an old school thing that they used to do back in the day. Did it in South Africa, did it in Mozambique. Um, they do it in Jamaica. Necklacing is where someone has committed a, a crime in the community and they're tied up and a, a, a car ties. Oh, yeah, 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 we do that here. Or at least we used to do that here. Oh, um, yeah. we just, they throw a, a tie around your neck and burn you. Yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, I say that casually and someone who's never been to this side or raised at a time when I was, because I don't know if they still do it now. By the time when I was right. young and lived in Nigeria very briefly, that was yes. something that happened that I saw that scarred me. Um, that was something that I saw. And it's one of those moments where I really questioned humans and our abilities to not just hurt the environment around us, but to destroy actual beings. Yes. Because no matter what crime this person has committed, does it warrant you literally wrapping? I mean, it wasn't just that they would throw tires around their necks. They yeah. would pour gasoline, petrol, whatever they can find, yes. light a match. They wouldn't yes. run away, mind you. No. They would then stand there and watch you burn and scream. Yes. But that's, that's an aspect of humanity that we often like to ignore because throughout the ages, whether it's Europe or Africa or the Americas, they are acts of cruelty that are used to... There are um, enormous acts of cruelty that are used to kind of galvanize a, a, a specific way of thinking. So anyone who deviates from certain ways of thinking are normally publicly humiliated and destroyed, physically destroyed, because it teaches everyone who survives that they must toe the line, they must think and act a certain way, or else this will be you. But when you do something so horrible, why do, why do you... I don't know what is worse, walking away out of shame while this person burns and, and dies or standing there and watching them die. Because when you're standing to watch them die, it's not that you're honoring their death. Mm -hmm. It's like you're celebrating your sacrifice to whatever gods of... of carnage. Carnage that you've just cr created this, this effigy, this sacrifice for. I don't know. It, it always disturbed me. Um, so much so that after a while, I started to feel very sorry for armed robbers. And mm. then I would start trying to find out why people stole in the first place. Right. You know, why people would do that. And you find out they're hungry or, you know, they were brought from one state to another, promised an amazing life, and then someone mistreated them. And so they ran away. And there's so many reasons why people fall into this, this horrible um, cycle of just being and breeding criminals. Yes. And then with these criminals, they then fall into the cycle of just distrusting society and everybody around them and then you know there's the whole cycle of gang violence and crime and whatever have you and just there's so much that we're, we haven't figured out we're still doing the same things that we we're doing centuries ago yes. things that we will say oh that's tribalism oh that's racism we still do things to each other we just can we oh sorry i'm going off on a on a tangent that that's not even it's not even parts it's not even part of your interview but i'm just like oh why are we like this you're listening to The Unsullied with Orica Goddess. That's me. And this episode was edited by 808 Extra. You can find them on Instagram 
at 808XTRA. If I was good, good, good. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. We weren't talking about forgiveness. We were talking about... Okay, well, you were talking about forgiving your father and was, and also yes. um, taking yourself to the point where you you weren't going to hold yourself back by the anger and disappointment of, of your father's decisions. Um, yes. And that's actually something that I, I, I discuss with my sister every now and again. I still haven't managed to get through to her. There are things that happened to us growing up um, as kids that were very, very traumatizing. Um, things that even between the two of us, we can't even, you know, the two people who are there when it happens, we can't even look at each other and, and talk about it, much less, you know, breaking it down to, to random strangers. And so there are times when I see her and she's, she's older now. She's, she's, she's a mother. She's struggling. You know, she's been through (laughs) wedding, divorce. She's been through... Sorry, I'm having more. I'm so sorry. I know. I'm sorry for laughing when you said she's older now. No, 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 no. It's it's fine. Because because there's a song that I've been trying to find, and it's called "She's Older Now" by Betty Wright. Um, and um, it's no longer in circulation. It's possibly on vinyl. Um, it has Luther Vandross in backing vocals. That's how awesome the song is. And it's just it's a kind of like American reggae. Did you say Luther on backing vocals? Did you know Luther did some awesome backing vocals? What? He sang BVs for Change. He sang BVs for David Bowie. He sang BVs for Patti LaBelle. In fact, um, he sang backing vocals for Bette Midler. And the pay that he took from the Bette Midler gig actually paid for Never Too Much. Oh, my days. Stop it. That's what paid for that demo. Yes, I. That is great. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I wish I could sing, Sha. I could do some beat back in vocals. I do, I do love yeah. that song. I do love that song. Um, I used to use it as an exercise routine. The, um, I can't hear myself. I can't, uh, can't hear myself. I don't want to love me. Do you know the words yeah. of that song? Okay, try singing it by jogging on the spot. Oh, that's tough. You'll no, be that's dead tough. by the chorus. You'll be <laughs> no, dead. that's tough. <laughs> your, your lung will come out of your body and wave a flag like, please, please, madam. I surrender no all to <laughs> Jesus is what your lungs will be saying. Mm-hmm. Best believe. Um, but, you yeah, know, so going back to my sister, it's, it's that I would then, I mean, I still tell her that, that there are things that happened to you growing up. Um, our parents at the end of the day, they did the best they could with the limited knowledge and capacity that they had. They were deeply flawed as we are and as we hope to not be for our own kids. But in the way we dis- we were disappointed by our parents, we are inevitably on some level, sadly, going to disappoint our own kids. And that's just a cycle of life, sad as it is. Um, I know it sounds a bit grim, but it's it's just facts of life. And so to my to my sister, because I mean, like I said, she's been through marriage, divorce, you know, trying to find yourself in a weird country and all all manner of of horrible things as well. But she's a mother, and there are things that she says now where I literally have to pull her up on it, and I say, for the longest time, I've allowed you to be angry, to be upset, to be dissatisfied about how your life has turned out because you would always blame it on how we were raised or who raised us or who did not raise us, which was even actually the more important um, um, bits to add to the scenario is who did not raise us. 
And so what I say to her is at some point, you have to stop blaming other people for what happened to you, for what, for where your life is right now. Because at some point you have to accept that you are an adult, you are in charge, you are in control and able to make decisions on how you want your life to turn out. Not how it turned out because somebody did X, Y, Z, but from this point on, draw that line in the sand and decide what you want going forward. And if you can't do that, but you shouldn't got- still be standing there blaming somebody who did something 30, 40 years ago who do it, they don't even remember and who since then has even changed their own view on life. Like it's not fair on both of you. You both need to move on. And I say this because without you doing a version of that, you wouldn't have gotten up and decided to go to film school. You would have just continued to do things in a way rebelling against your father's decision, hating on his decision, being disappointed by it, not forgetting it. And then holding yourself back. Were you about to say something? But, but yes, I was going to say that the problem with trauma is that it's very difficult to negotiate with it. Because with trauma comes depression, melancholy, sadness, the usual list. And those things have the ability to erase your memory. And they may not fully erase your memory, but they can erase a part of your memory that you might actually rely on later in life to move forward. So like knowing you're amazing, knowing you're fabulous, knowing you're wonderful. These are concepts that you can't remember if you're still immersed in something that happened to you in a a previous era. Specifically, like myself, um, as an example, I it took me a long time to work out that much of the pain I feel about life isn't real. It's just I have this incredible memory that can relive a pain. So the pain feels like I'm feeling the pain, but I'm not feeling the pain. I'm wallowing or I'm living in the memory of the pain long after the pain has actually passed. I have physical wounds in my body that are related to events that I can now barely remember. But I remember when it happened, what I can remember is like, um, like this, like I got this, this, this thing on my arm. It's a reminder that there was a, there was a gun battle in my neighborhood and some automatic weapons were fired and then I found myself on the floor with a hole in my arm. And I remember it stinging and I remember being scared that possibly they were gonna come and finish the job. Um, this, is, this is a trademark of, of, my, of my youth. That is so scary. So one, I can live in that moment. Like I've been shot. You can, you can choose to live in fear for the rest of your life that somebody can randomly just, just come up and decide to shoot up a place and you could get hit or still dead. Or I can recognize that horrible things happen. Like another really equally, and this is, sounds trivial, but an equally horrible thing happened to me again in Jamaica. Me and a couple of guys, we were going to the beach. And when we got near to the beach, we decided we we're going to have a race. I, being a supreme athlete, knew that I had to win this race for my pride and for everything else. So I begin to run. And I'm losing because I'm wearing flip-flops. So I take my flip-flops off and I'm running fast. I'm catching up with everyone. We're laughing. And then I step into an enormous pile of warm cow dung. The cow dung then goes between my toes and I have probably one of my greatest nervous breakdowns in about four seconds. Cause I just started screaming and writhing around and I tried to run to the water and I was like, no, don't go in the sea with your shitty foot. Sorry, with your, with your poofy. So go somewhere else, 
go and wipe your feet off in some 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 I don't some moss, dig a hole. This thing to this day has still disturbed me. And I've got a hole in my body from a bullet. So it's like the moment of pain becomes like a loop. It becomes like a, almost like a movie you can visit regularly. And so in terms of sadness, in terms of melancholy, we revisit, we revisit these moments of pain, but the actual pain itself no longer exists. You are no longer in pain. It is the memory of the pain that you are now addicted to. Speaking directly to what you've just said, I hear you, but I feel like I want to not argue, but disagree with that just slightly. Please. I feel like when you say you're no longer in pain, I think that what applies would be you're no longer in danger, but you're still in pain. I wouldn't say you're no longer in pain. You're no longer in danger, but you're still in pain. My, my, my retort is this. When, for instance, um, a thorn pierces your skin and ruptures to, I don't know, some muscles and you have to pull the thorn out. When the thorn ruptures your skin, a signal is sent to your brain through your nerves to say damage. Damage has occurred. And that, that message of damage takes a form of what we call clinically pain. It's an electronic message saying damage. So when you feel emotional pain, it's the same thing, it's damage. But once the damage has happened, the pain subsides, but the memory of the pain does not subside. We relive the pain as if it's actually happening, but in real, in truth, it isn't happening. You're remembering what it felt like when it happened. But then even as you remember what happened, it hurts. And that causes a pain in its own self, a different kind of pain, a tangential pain, but a valid pain nonetheless. For people who suffer from um, certain types of feelings, that is a true statement. But the actual truth is, for some other people like myself, I recognize that the pain is more about me um, mourning the loss of the sanctity of my body or having my heart trampled upon by some girlfriend. Even today, I was telling a friend um, a story that he'd never heard before. One of my stories, I have a million stories. So I met this beautiful brown skinned girl in a church in London and I fell head over heels with her. We had a, a full, fully developed relationship. We were together for about three months. Um, she always came to my place. I never went to her place. And then- What is a fully- developed relationship look like for those of us who aren't developed on any level we were emotionally physically and spiritually communicating were you guys kneeling down and you know doing kumbaya my lord and meditating and levitating together we were we were involved in sexual intercourse of every type you can think of emotional intercourse physical intercourse everything was doing everything is a full relationship Thank you. So my girlfriend um, doesn't return my calls and I'm concerned for her safety. So I go around to her flat that I was never invited to, but I knew where she lived. I look through the letterbox and there were loads of letters on the floor indicating that she had not picked up a mail or she'd moved away suddenly. So without informing her, her, you know, her providers. So after like a week or two, I kind of stopped imagining she was kidnapped and murdered or she couldn't stand me anymore, couldn't bear, bear being with me. I imagined everything. And then I was walking through a local shopping district in London and I saw her sister. So I'm like, hey, how you doing? Yada, 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 greetings, greetings. So um, where's Beverly? 
And then she said, oh, you haven't heard? I'm like, no, no, what haven't I heard? She goes, oh, Be Beverly's gone down. I was like, gone down to where? She's gone to Caribbean. She goes, no, she's doing 15 years in some prison in London. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry? What, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, um, she, um, she robbed three Abbey Nationals. Abbey National, for those who's, who aren't aware, is a bank. It's a bank. Santander, it's called now. And it used to be a, a building society, I think, at one point as well. Yes. It was a building society. She robbed three building societies with a shotgun. <laughs> My church girlfriend, who we would pray together. We had a full relationship. Bible reading, poetry reading, film watching, intercourse. You were, wait, 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 wait. You were... You were in a full. <laughs> I can't. It breathe. was a full relationship. We were honest about, bro. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Bro, this is. I wish I was lying. We were in a fully formed, sorry, fully developed relationship for three months with someone who had a shakabula inside. Bank She she had a shotgun. Listen, I don't know if it was real or. She had a shotgun. And I, I'd like to point out that this was a time when getting guns weren't that easy in England. So for her, no, but even then, then I mean, now it's 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 rel I mean, it's 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 hard, but it's it's relatively easy now in comparison. So my question is, how did she get? What did she do to get her hands on the shotgun then? Well, I, I we never spoke after that. Stand by um, your man. <laughs> you didn't stand by your girl. Why would you yeah. not? His, Is it because she didn't share her? She didn't share her wins with you. No, no, I wouldn't want that anyway. If she had knocked down the door and said, "Hey, you know what, babe? I love you. We've been together for three months. You're the love of my life." Um, I did something. I can't really tell you what, but here is fifty thousand pounds. Just hold on to this. I'll be right back. So here's the thing. This is where middle class people are different from working class people. I can't stand you, Finn. I actually can't. You can't give a middle class person money with 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 a full report of how it was obtained. I am unplugging from this friendship, this relationship. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Random money in your house. No, that don't work. Because we don't like police. We don't like to talk to them. We don't like to talk to even the tax office. So, nah, random money. No, keep it in your house. I'll come to your house and spend it with you. But no. This thing is this thing is a magnet for bad spirits and negative things to happen. Okay, so you don't want the money, but you would have held on to the shotgun on her behalf, yes? No. We don't do that. We, we don't do that whole vibe. Do you have time for another story? Because I got stories. Go on then. <laughs> All right then. So we we'll fast forward a couple of years. I'm a musician. This is after the the, the the bank robber debacle. I'm a musician. I tour regularly. I moved to a new neighborhood into one of those London towers. Um, I come home one day. I come out of the F, um, elevator. There's these two young men hanging around the um, fire exit. There's like... By the elevator, there's a doorway where you can leave the building in case there's a fire. And they're there. So um, I was like, oh, do you want the lift? Could we call it elevator's lift? And they go, do you want the lift? And they're like, yeah. And they came through. And then I saw one of the guys had a bag. I'm like, I've got a bag like that. So anyway, I go into my apartment. The door's open. I've been burgled. I assume by those two guys that I just let get in the elevator. That's the gentlemanly assisted. So, so 
I'm angry, I'm hurt. So I, 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 I go downstairs and I'm walking around the housing estates trying to find these gentlemen. After about 40 minutes, I find them eating food somewhere. And so, you know, using the parlance of the times, hi, how are you? Um, I, you've burgled my house, I need my stuff back. And they were like, oh, we're really sorry. We didn't mean to burgle your house. We were just doing what we do and um, your stuff is gone. So, sorry. So I'm like, well, actually, my man, um, I'm deeply offended that you burgled me. The stuff I got, I purchased myself. So I'm going to need you to return my stuff. I'm giving you until 5 p.m. to return my stuff. And if you don't, there'll be consequences and repercussions. And they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. So I had you ever seen these guys before? Were they just random faces in the neighborhood that you followed to the cafe? They lived in the neighborhood, but I was new to the neighborhood, but I recognized their faces. So um, it gets to like four o'clock and I begin to suspect that they're not going to bring my stuff back. I don't know why, but I just, this feeling came over me like, you ain't getting your stuff back. They've sold your stuff. They've snorted it. They were probably eating your stuff when you went up to them. So, um, and they hadn't stole that much. They stole the Sega Mega Drive, 36 games, a video, a VHS player, a TV. And I think they had the TV and the thing and there was the VHS player and the thing they had. Anyway, so um, I decided in a moment of anger that I would call some gangsters that I know from Jamaica. Now, to put this into proper context, Jamaican gangsters of the 70s, 80s, and 90s are not like regular gangsters because they're basically paramilitary people who were trained by several international agencies, we should not name names, um, to do counterintelligence work and to do um, disruptive work so that pro-Western governments would be elected or pro-Soviet governments would be elected, either way. So there was a, it was Jamaica was basically part of the international chessboard of global politics. So what that basically meant was these men, or some of them women, but mainly men, um, have a propensity towards violence. The kind of violence that requires incredible amounts of creativity, the types of which I'm incapable of. Now, on a good day, I'll do some kind of Jamaican, yeah, money, I deal with my yacht, or some Rastafarian kind of chat, but that's not my reality. That's just the personality I'm occupying, yeah? So these Yardi guys come, um, they're called Yardis because that's the code name that the um, UK um, and US um, police forces gave them. They're called Yardis, but it just means these are specially trained military, paramilitary people who will go into a neighborhood, destroy the local crime economy and replace it with their own. And then will be so dug in that you have to get a bigger force to try and dig them out. Um, so you can't go in there with regular police. You've got to go in there with like flying squad or people who are armed or people who know that these men, they don't just shoot back, they shoot really well. So in my madness, I thought, nah, it's fine. I'm a cool band then because these two, these kids disrespected me. So I, my friends come, my Jamaican friends come and we get in their car and we're driving around the neighborhood. And as I'm driving around the neighborhood, it's like summertime. It's, the weather is easy. The breeze is blowing on me in the back seat. There's beautiful like blossoms in the trees, and I start to find my sense. Did you have an afro then or cornrows? No, I was always bald. Um, so then, so then, so then, I yeah, I, I said by chance, um, yeah. So like, um, how are you gonna get the money off them though? Because they're 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 um they're kids in it. They just they would have smoked the stuff by now. 
And then they laughed. My two friends laughed. I said, no, seriously, seriously, no, 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 jokes aside, like, how are you going to get the money? So we then pull up outside of a, a chip shop. And lo and behold, outside a chip shop is one of the guys, one of the burglar guys. And he's standing there. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. And then he starts to get a bit aggressive. And the guys in the front seat are like, is that hit? Is that one of them? So I'm like, no, no, wait, wait. So how are you going to get the money off this guy? I just need to know this money thing, how it's going to work. And after a bit of cajoling, they then said, okay, so we have a house and the house has nine bedrooms and each bedroom has a bed. And every and on each bed, there's a young man chained to the bed and we rent him to various people so that they can use him. And whatever money his, how much did you look to? 3,000 pounds? Yeah. The first £3,000 his bottom makes, that's your money. Oh, my word. This is where the middle class thing kicks in because you're like, yeah, this doesn't work for me. <laughs> On a spiritual level, I'm now going to ruin someone's life. I start thinking in that moment, but how does he go to the toilet? How does... If he wants to scratch his nose, how does he scratch his nose if he's chained to a bed? With his back's itching, how does he itch his back? What if a fly comes in and starts trying to lay eggs in his skin? I'm like, how does he defend himself not thinking the full Because I haven't even, I can't process this. So then they're like, is that him? Because he looks good. We could take that one anyway. I'm like, no, 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 that's him. I know him. He's fine. This is my friend. Let's drive around the other side. So like, so we drive around the other side. And the guy's like shouting abuse at the car. I could have easily, his whole life flashed before him. He has no idea. The guys that were in this car, you know, there's like Nigerian gangsters and there's Nigerian gangsters. You know, there's some guys, they like area boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's other guys, they're involved with the occult. And so they, they're, in, you know, they, 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 they understand the disappearance of bodies. And listen, there are people, there's levels to this thing. And I'm not on that level. I'm not on that level. I make art. I make the world more beautiful than it was before. That's my role in this life. Not to be responsible or to have someone's, someone's life. What? How long do you last being chained to a bed? How many men will have sex with you before you decide to escape, commit suicide? And you're assuming it, it would just be men. Yeah, I'm assuming, but I'm just assuming he doesn't wash. So who's going to want to be with him? Maybe people like dirty thug guys that are chained to a bed. I don't know. Just the whole, I'll, and this is what, I'm, what I mean by the creativity of some criminals. It's like some people are so good at crime that they can use an email to rob a person with savings. I just, I don't know how to do it. Great, good for you. But I just know that that's not my economy. That's not the vibe that I want to be involved in. I want to be involved in something a little bit more wholesome, a little bit more closer to, to how we're supposed to be as humans, not this, nah, nah. Our service says no. Nyet, nej, no. Nine, no. So they dropped me off and then I was like, yeah, okay, so I'll see you later. And then they're like, you know, you still owe us, yeah? And I was like, sure, because, yeah, because I'd rather owe them than, you know. And they did call the favor in because I moved house and I found a new apartment. I changed my number. And then somehow they found me and they came to my house and they said, you have to move out your house for two weeks. No explanation. I just had to leave my new house for two weeks. And then they used my new house for who knows, dismembering, rape, filming a porno, making a movie. I don't know, but I just know that I'm probably I probably lived in a crime scene. I don't know, but nonetheless, I came back after two weeks. 
they gave me some money and they gave you some money i never asked any favors of them and then i decided to buy a house hang on how did you how was how did you okay collecting their money but then your hypothetical no i didn't okay collect them no 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 no, no, no. i didn't okay collect the money they gave you the money you took it but then your three-month girlfriend hypothetically gives you fifty thousand pounds, and you said you wouldn't take the money. I, I need you to uh, how 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 does that work? So basically, I walked down the street, and I just dropped the money in a bin. Did you count it? Did you did you know how much it was? No. Okay, I have no further questions, Your Honor. We we no. <laughs> there there's an old saying: if you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. But you can't tell those people no because they will. I don't know what they, they might disappear me if I decide to say no. These are the same kinds of people. I'm not saying them in particular, but these are the kinds of people that left Jamaica, went to New York, went to a neighborhood in New York, and thought, "Oh, they sell drugs here. Let's murder all the drugs people, their families, and anyone who's their friends, and then we'll just take over this bit." This is the kind of mentality we're dealing with. The kind of Pablo Escobar kind of type people who are just. So how did you make friends with them in the first place? They used to live across the street from me and we went to the same primary school. They lived across the street from you in Jamaica and then you guys met up again in England. Yes. Well, I, I did a I did a hip hop concert and then they were just standing in the concert and I was just like, oh crap. It was it actually felt like it actually felt like that moment. I don't know if you've ever seen Scarface. There's a bit in Scarface where these two assassins come to kill Scarface's boss in some nightclub and then everyone's like boogieing and they're just sitting there just waiting to kill they just and i looked over and they were like i was doing some hip-hop everyone say oh whatever nonsense we were doing at the time <laughs> and then i saw them we'll just call them tweedledee and tweedlekill and then i was just like ah oh, crap <laughs> and then they came over and then one of them gave me a piece of paper and said translated write down your number it wasn't a question that was an order and so I, I wrote down my number and then they just disappeared into the crowd and then here's the thing um if you're in lagos and there's a there's a there's an army cordon and one of the army men with his uh, long rifle thing cocks his rifle and says to you write down your number write down a number i would what write would down my do? number but it will also be the number i had three weeks Three weeks ago? Three minutes ago. Whatever number I write down, I, I sure right. shit won't have that right. same number by the time I'm done writing it. Right. <laughs> the end. Yes. Yes. I'm telling you, you'd write the number, but then you drive down the road and you just dump your phone in the car. In, in, in somewhere. Like, give it to some passing. Like, excuse me. Oga, you want the phone? Take it. Take it. Go. And trust me, because you can't negotiate with those people. Those people are built for something else and we need them in our society but i'm an artisan i make things i don't make death i'm just not involved in that death economy like i don't get stopped by the police i've never been searched none of that i've been searched at airports but so what i what i was hearing when when you were talking um i was sharing your stories earlier actually um when we talk about trauma what i what i heard is with you you acknowledge the trauma for what it is and you know that it is not a pain yes. that still exists. With me, on the other hand, because you were talking about memory earlier, and with me, yes. I um, I forget things. Yes. And I knew exactly when it happened as well. There was an aunt I used to live with. Um, you know, I told you I, I moved around a lot, a lot. Uh, there was an aunt I used to live with. My memory was, was a lot yes. more decent back then. 
And this lady took special joy out of torturing you for things that you remembered and things that you saw. So she would do or say certain things and then she would ask you, oh yeah, didn't this and this happened? And then I would say, oh yes, like the recorder that I am. Yes, that happened at this time. And this person wore blue and that person did this and blah, blah, blah. And every single time she would get me in trouble. So over time to cope with that, I mean, it's a lot more, you know, traumatic than, than I've made it sound. Yeah, but... To cope with that, I remember the day when I deliberately stopped remembering things. Like you will tell me something and I would immediately engage the part of my brain that says, nope, we don't want to know this. We don't want to. And I started doing, and over time, I started doing with everything. And so it means that there are entire chunks of my childhood and even now as an adult that I don't remember. I will walk into somebody who I went to high school with and we spent seven years in the same class and you sat next to me and we fed each other you know every single day for seven years and I will not recognize you I won't even remember your name and that's that's where I'm at now and that's also how I deal with trauma but over the years what I started remember so I swapped remembering specifics because I didn't want to get in trouble because I didn't want to be you know chastised or whatever and I would instead remember feelings so that my sense of this person is dangerous because everybody has that thing where they remember how people make them feel right my sense of that is heightened so i will walk into a room and yes. i'll be like "Ooh, danger 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 and i can't remember what you did or why i just know that you're not a safe person for me and that's all thank you for listening to the unsullied podcast if you'd like to talk about this episode on social media please use the hashtag T-U-W-O-G. And if you want to share this on with somebody, you can use linktree forward slash O-R-E-K-A-G-O-D-I-S. Now, all this information, you don't have to cram it. It's in the show notes. So just scroll. Scroll now. It's there. Thank you. If I was good, good, good. What did falling in love feel like? That moment when you wanted to give up everything for love and has that changed with age? Falling in love felt like being reborn. Falling in love felt like how I imagined what it was like to be Adam, when there was one perfect being and then God created two imperfect beings. And then the only way those imperfect beings can feel perfect again is to be together. That's what falling in love felt like. With experience, with falling out of love more than once, or with falling out of love because your girlfriend turns out to be... (laughs) She turns out to be a bank robber. <laughs> Trollop. She'd be a trollop, a murderer, a bank robber. You don't stop loving someone because they're, 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 they're not how you want them to be. You just remove yourself from an unsafe situation. But the feelings, you know, what's great about being a man is that we are the masters of suppression. So if something happens, we just push it down to a place where we think it's not there. It's still there, but we just pretend it's not there. It's like you're sitting in your living room. There's a huge jackal in the living room going, <laughs> we'll just pretend there's no jackal. There's just me and the TV. That's, that's what it's like to be a man because no one cares about your feelings. That's the general consensus that we share amongst ourselves. No one cares about our feelings. We go through things that no one celebrates and then other people go through them, women, and they want it to be celebrated. And we're like, yeah, we do that every day. Nobody celebrates. So I guess part of masculine culture is to suppress your feelings.
deeply. What is your earliest memory of pain? Yes. Or rather, not just pain, but a conscious decision. Because you shared something beautifully earlier about, you know, being shot in the arm and you still have the scarf to, to prove it. Walking through shit on the beach and not knowing what to do with your foot afterwards. Stepping in. No, no, no. Stepping in warm countdown. Warm, you know, not just cold, warm cow dung in a tropical country, an equatorial country. Cow dung is now one with my skin, between my toes. Gee, Father, help me. Please, with my Bible. Got my Bible. Hey, that was too much. Yeah, but not just the pain, but because of the pain, your earliest conscious decision, your earliest memory of a conscious decision to never feel that again. That would probably be my teenage years because up until my teenage years I was never able to suppress any kind of pain I was just a walking bag of feelings I loved I hated I was happy I was sad just a bag of feelings but I think I was okay. I dated a, I met a girl at the Nottingham Carnival in London um, and she was really cute and I followed her home and you know we started dating in a non-creepy way no, no, I went home with her is what I'm saying. Because we were just talking about music and art and stuff. And she was like the first person that I outed myself to, to say that I liked going to galleries and museums. Because at that time in, in the UK, going to a gallery and going to a museum was kind of like a non-black thing to do. You're supposed to go to like a club or a shibin or I don't know. But I liked art. And so I admitted to her that I liked paintings and drawings and stuff. And she was like, oh, I like paintings and drawings as well. And then we went into her house and we looked at her freaking Gauguin book and it was just awesome. So we started dating and about five months into the relationship, she said that I was too repressed to be her boyfriend and she wanted to do freaky things. And I wasn't prepared to do freaky things. And then um, she said, I don't want to be with you anymore. Did she expand at all? Did she explain what she meant by freaky things? Yeah, she wanted to do like a more, a more mature and a more open-minded uh, sex palette, I think she wanted to indulge in that more. Are we talking Angelina Jolie and um, what's his name, where they wanted to wear each other's blood around their neck type thing, or or is this more Fifty Shades of Grey, the film, not the book? I don't think the film has been made yet for what she wanted to do. Thing is, I was like, I was nineteen. I don't have time for that. I can't do that. I'm barely holding on to my personality. Like, I can't be doing that stuff because. We have, one of the things that I learned in Jamaican culture, not all Jamaicans learn it, learn it, but I learned it. And the thing that I learned was, for lack of a better description, Orisha culture, which is submerged under Christian culture in the Caribbean, um, teaches you about the line. And when you cross the line, you can only cross it once. So that's one of the things that keeps, I guess, repressed people repressed because you know that once you taste like the ice cream, you can't not eat ice cream. You can't not ignore ice cream again. Once you, you know, partake in certain types of expression, physical expression, you can't not take part in that expression. But we also felt, I guess because of the Christian side of the culture at that time, was certain activities lead you to hell. And not to hell as in you burn in a pit with fire and all that good stuff forevermore. No, the hell where... You are tortured by your desire and being unable to satisfy it. And is is it is it unknown desire or desire that you've experienced before, just that one time, and because you have that knowledge of it, you're forever yearning for it? Yes. 
And so that yearning becomes your hell. It becomes your unlivable moment. So you then try and subjugate that with other activities, but all you do, you're increasingly... So what you're saying is at 19, when this woman, this amazing, sexually open for everything woman said and expressed all the way she wanted to have sex... For you, it wasn't, yeah. I'm running away because I'm scared. It was a, I'm going to taste this the one time and it might be the cocaine that kills me. Yes, I'm not, I'm not doing that. It's just like, you know, um, you're in it. You, you're not seeing this actually happen. I'm just using it as a scenario. You're in with a bunch of guys. Um, they're laughing and joking and smoking. Someone passes you a blunt. You can take the blunt and you can smoke it. You can smoke the spliff or you could just say, no, I'm good. Because you know that you're a creative person, that you have the ability to, you have the gift of sight beyond sight. Do you know what that means? So if you have sight beyond sight, then if you partake in certain chemical activities, you could ruin that or you could enhance it to the point of insanity. So you don't take the blunt, you don't take the spliff, you just say, no, I'm good. And so it's that it was that mentality that I had. But then at 19, 19 from the Caribbean is like being 32 in Nigeria. You're old because we have girls who are getting pregnant at 10. We have people who are involved in criminal activity at 11. We have people who are running uh, their little corner shop or a little stall at 12. Like I'm saying, and they've got like four other stalls running on some other corners that they're in charge of. So they're doing stock, they're doing, they're doing uh, money. They, you know, so it's like, but also it's the culture where you'll die at 50. You know, something's gonna get you. We've got creatures in Jamaica that they don't have in many other places in the world, worms that bore into your skin and lay eggs. And, you know, there's this fish that they have in some um, r rural parts that it lays its eggs in the, um, the urinary tract of animals. So if you're urinating in a, in a waterway, this tiny fish who's jagged will swim up your urinary tract, lodge itself in your bedroom. Because you're aware of these things, you kind of, you, you learn um, moderation in all things. That's how mm. you survive. So are you saying that, are you saying that you're part of your survival through throughout your life now, moving on from being that 19 year old? And I'm sorry if, if you didn't even finish the story you were trying to share about the... No, basically, basically her breaking up with me broke my heart because she was the one. I thought she was the one. She was my Ade. Ade is my, my wife right now, but she was my Ade at that time. I was just like, I couldn't live all, like I could, I could smell her in the air when we were miles apart. I could, I knew she was having a good day. I was just, me and her was just in sync. And then she was like, yo, I don't need you anymore. You're rubbish. And I'm like, oh, well, I can do something freaky. You can put your finger in my bum if you want or something. She's like, you're not, you're not really into it. You're lying. I'm like, uh... <laughs> and 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 that was my first time of for feeling um, feeling pain, like rejection on a whole other level. I was physically in pain. I cried. I I I I was beside myself. I didn't go to work for for a couple of days. I was so messed up. And then afterwards, I was in this kind of in between place where I was like conscious and not conscious, but I was like going through the functionary um, activities of a person, but I wasn't feeling like a person. Yeah, it was it was brutal. And so is there anything that you've learned to do to sort of guard yourself from that specific flavor of pain going forward? No. Life is pain. There's no way to avoid it. 
maybe the sadist in me is talking, maybe the masochist in me, but there's no way to avoid it. And, and I know, um, not that I'm championing physical violence, but as a man in in one of the most cruel cities in the world, if I'm not prepared to get punched in the face, then I'm going to get robbed or I'm going to get stabbed or I'm going to get something happen to me. Like pain is reality. There's no way to avoid it. The question is, will you be standing when the when the pain exchange is over? And I'm going to be standing because I'm here to do work. I'm here to make beautiful things, but I won't be trampled on or, or, or mistreated or, you know, have myself abused by someone just because I don't want to get punched in the face. Nigeria um, gave me a jewel of an idea. I was in Nigeria um, in 2016 and I was observing my wife's family and how they are with each other. And I, and I compared it to how my family was with each other. And I got the final piece of, of a puzzle that I've been trying to put together my entire life. So like when I observed my wife's family, I realized the reason why my dad said no to that check was because he didn't have financial intelligence. And the reason why my dad didn't have financial intelligence was because my grandfather didn't have financial intelligence, nor did my grandmother. And then once I worked that out, I realized that, oh, I've come from a tradition of lack. I come from a tradition of poverty. Not that we don't have money and we're not, you know, whatever, but it's like poverty in the sense where wealth is not handed from generation to generation. Poverty in the sense where wealth has to be created in each generation and it's and it's pardon me, it's disseminated when the next generation comes online. So when you're 21, your mother and father does not give you 150,000 pounds and say, go and do. That's financial intelligence. When you're 21, you would not have had 18 years of being groomed by your parents and their friends and their aunties and their uncles of how to manage money, to treat money the way a farmer treats seeds. I could not have come up with that had I not been in Nigeria and observed the hawkers. The hawker economy is fascinating to me. I want to do a whole documentary on them because you have people who are selling essential items in a small space, in a small um, area, but at the same time, the profit margin on what they're selling is so minimal that they can't leave the area. They can't get another hawker team to work for them in another area. They are literally trapped in this ever-decreasing financial spiral by selling you know, crackers and biscuits and whatever they're selling, but it's like they can't get out of it. And I'm like, how do you not know that this is not going to work for you? How do you not grow as a business when you are dealing with money every day? The reason why they can't grow, not all of them, some of them, is because they have zero financial intelligence and they have no financial intelligence because nobody in their family has it. My dad can't teach me how to manage money because he doesn't know how. So how can I be angry at someone for what they don't know? How can I be angry at someone, for instance, because they don't know how to love? Because they themselves come from a tradition where love was deprived from the, the family structure, where empathy is not part of the family language. So it's like I'm harboring all these negative feelings, whether it be covert or, 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 or overt, about situations where people actually have no control. And once I'd figure that in terms of money, like my relationship with money changed. I stopped wanting things that were new and started wanting things that I need. So 
instead of buying the best microphone, I bought the microphone that can work for two years that will not make me broke by the end of that week or the microphone that I can afford to buy again if it breaks or the laptop that I can afford to buy again if it breaks because part of the kind of poverty mentality is trying to get the best of everything and then trying to make it last forever when obsolescence is an essential part of business. Nothing lasts forever. Laptops break, equipment breaks. It breaks because they need us to buy more equipment. I mean, you're in Lagos and you're in traffic for long enough. The sun will lick you and your phone and your phone will just say bye-bye and that's it. Coming up next. For me, I had to make a radical change in my business model and stop working for money and start working for profit. Being in Lagos, it was like being, probably because I don't speak some of the languages. I don't speak any of the languages but English. So I was able to kind of observe the culture um, and realize that actually a lot of people who are working today are working for no reason. And by that, I mean, their cost of living is 100,000 and they earn 90. So they, they get credit or they borrow money to try and bolster the missing bit that they need for their cost of living. And they don't. Some people have jobs, some people have careers. Careers take long to develop because they pay a lot of money. Jobs are quick to get because they don't pay a lot of money. And even if you have 200,000 million, whatever denomination of money you have, you can lose it tomorrow if you don't have the right kind of understanding. If you don't know how to buy into this app company and sell at this point or buy rubber or buy water or whatever essential um, equities that you can use to help your money to grow because money in itself over time loses value. So there are so many ways where like, I learned by being in Nigeria that some people are, are, are profitable to you and some people are not. Not just financially, but emotionally, spiritually, sexually, culturally, everything. So like, so it's like you can so easily get caught up in a situation where emotionally you're investing 90,000 into something that's going to cost you 150,000. So you'll always come out the loser. So many men, oh my God, you're beautiful. I want you to make you my wife. Do you have house though? Do you have savings? You want to get married with what savings? You have to borrow money to get married, to rent a house. Like you haven't thought this through. You see a beautiful woman, you see a beautiful man, you want to have children, where are they going to live? How are they going to eat? No, there's a belief that um, children are blessings from God and God will always provide. You should. There's never a good time to have kids and you should just do the do. Everything else will, will work out. Good for you. They are probably right, which is why, you know, you're now on a car driver or something. I don't know. I'm not looking down at anyone for how they make their living. I'm just saying that in any field of work, you can apply intelligence to how you manage your finances or you can apply the lack of intelligence. But if you're earning, so if your cost of living is more than you're earning, you need to change how you're earning. And it took for me to be in Nigeria for a couple of months to realize that, oh my God, there are so many things that I've been doing that doesn't make money, but because I'm caught up in the, the image of it or the feeling of it or, or, or the culture of it, that I'm just denying this simple truth. So, for example, I have a film company called JustJazzVisuals.com. And up until, say, 2017, we were a service-based company. We made music videos and documentaries and stuff for other people. And then I worked out, luckily, that because of the equipment that we use and the time it takes to produce any particular imagery or whatever, it costs, on average, £1,200 a day to make a film. 
for someone. So if I'm being paid a thousand pounds, that means I'm I'm paying that extra two hundred. But using that same mentality that you're saying, because it's a blessing to get to get a, a, a project is a blessing to work with people is a blessing. But how much of a blessing is it when you end up doing twenty jobs and when you calculate how much money you've lost? It's the it's like the sorry to prattle on, but it's the it's the thing of you want to get water, so you dig. 10 shallow holes when if you'd have just done one deep hole one deep borehole you got water i mean sometimes people do that because you you absolutely do look at things and think well if i do this job really well yes this person is only going to pay me a thousand pounds instead of a thousand two hundred he will recommend me to other people mm -hmm. and the person he recommends me to might be somebody who has three thousand pounds for my one thousand two hundred pound job and she will give me three thousand yes. pounds without even negotiating yes and that is the risk that some people take and dig themselves into a financial hole exactly well the the reason why i changed my company from a service company to a, to a production company because i asked myself one if money was not object what would i make I'd make, I'd, I'd produce films, fiction, documentary based on things that I want to do. I wouldn't work for people doing these various projects that sometimes are not as fulfilling as they could be. Um, and then the second question is, are you making money? And the answer was no, I wasn't making money. I made a short film um, in 2019 and I made more money from that one short film than I did from all the films I'd made before because I applied financial intelligence. And by that, I mean, I put the film in various film festivals that had either uh, a prize money uh, aspect or paid some kind of bursary or some kind of something. I did a couple of talks based on the film. So that paid me some money. And when I calculated the money, I'm like, that's a lot of money over, over the period of a year. I didn't do anything else. I just made the one film and then I put it in all the festivals and it made me um, a little bit of change. And I can't say this is universal for everyone, but what I do, what I did learn in Nigeria, where Nigeria was so pivotal, it's effort plus time plus quality. Quality. So if you put enough effort into a quality experience, over time, you can make profit. But if it takes too long, you don't make profit. So the basic example of that is, I want you to act in a film. It's a one day shoot. I'm going to pay you 20,000 US dollars. That's what you're worth. 20,000 US dollars for a one-day shoot. I don't pay you that $20,000 for 10 years. How much have I really paid you? Because if I pay you the $20,000 the day you do the job, you are now 19,000 in profit. But if the, every, the longer it takes me to pay you, the less profit you're in because your living costs are eating away at the, at the profit possibilities. And that's the thing that was difficult with the service industry because unless you employ some radical system where they pay you all the money up front and there's no this, oh, can you change this and change this and change that crap, then you could probably make a serious amount of money. But it's impossible because you're working with people. People change their minds all the time. They have different influences. So for me, I had to make a radical change in my business model and stop working for money and start working for profit. Are there any things that you can, is there anything you can think of from maybe your childhood, maybe not. Um, I'm more curious about the childhood because I find that there, it's always interesting to learn how much of ourselves 
is still tied to that scared little girl or that, you know, very proud little boy who just always wanted a pat on the back saying you are awesome. You know, we keep telling ourselves that we're we're more than where we used to be or we're better and we're bigger and we don't need nobody. But it's just, I find that a lot of things boils down to where we were as kids. So I think I'll go with that. Um, so can you tell me if there's anything that you do now that if you really think about it, it's because a part of you is still running from an experience from your childhood? Yeah, making art is part of my coping mechanism as an adult to deal with the 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 happiness and the horrors of being a young person. Do you think so? Because you said that even as a kid, you always wanted to make art and that was before any horror, tragedy, um, pain. Mm, well, the tragedy began immediately because I'm four years old and I'm in a country where these people are not my parents. That's my mother's mother. That's not my mother. That's my mother's father. That's not my mother. That's, they, they, weren't my, they weren't my parents. And so that immediate horror of like not being with your your, who you consider to be your guardian was 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 difficult. And then having the added bonus of living in a family that's very academic, so nobody hugs, nobody reassures, everything is a, an issue of competition and equations. Like we would sit around, me and some of my cousins would sit around after dinner doing math games. That's whack. Math games. Not running outside and climbing stuff. Are we talking like Terry Wogan countdown type mouth game, uh, math games? No, like... Carol Vorderman math games? Plus, no, 299 plus 72 is what? Five, four, three, and you got to have the answer. Or a slap in your face. I actually did some of those as well. So 99 plus 99 plus 72 is what? Exactly. And the hand is coming towards your face as you're thinking. This, These were the games. It was whack. It was horrible. So the thing is, but it makes you sharper. It also makes the skin on your on your face tougher, leathery. It does indeed. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but the, the the thing what it did it's, is that I knew there was a kind of bliss in creating things. So one of the first things I created was my own little community. So in in those days we used to have valve amps, valve um, uh, devices. So that instead of having transistors and circuit boards um, and microprocessors, we had valves. And the valve was basically, it's like a light bulb with a circuit in it. And I would find valves because stuff broke. And then I would knock the top off the valve. And then I would capture ants and put them in the valve. And I would drop little crumbs of sugar and salt and bread in there. And I would name them. And I would create like my imaginary world. Like this is like King King Claw. And this is Big Jaw. And Big Jaw is, you know, and sometimes when I get bored, I'd get another ant colony and I put them in there so they could fight it out. Kind of Game of Thrones style. <laughs> Mate, where's the time? But um, I'm a child. And then I didn't have toys. So I would play with like things around the house, utensils, clothes pegs just random, you know, bits of crockery, rocks, pebbles, twigs, <laughs> make up my own little world. And then obviously an older cousin would come along and kick it away, like, stop talking to yourself, you madman. And then also I used to enjoy looking at clouds because then I could like imagine there's a world where like nobody beats you up and nobody steals your meat from the and gives you like a whole plate of yam. So like we, five kids trying to eat dinner, we have to say prayers. We know when I open my eyes, I've got everybody's yam. 
and everybody's got all the good stuff. So I'm like eating dry yam with no gravy, crying. Why is he always crying? This one is mad. He's <laughs> a mad boy. <laughs> no, it wasn't great. So I, 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 I found myself drawn to creativity. And then I was lucky to have an uncle who was also creative. And so he's the one that kind of like, you know, let me, let me load his Bolex, um, 60 mil film camera. Let me um, take a couple of shots on his 12, his 12 reel of photo film. You know, um, one time he was painting his car and I helped him paint the car and I was, I was given like the, the front arch to paint and I was so diligent with my little paintbrush and, you know, and he came along and just did it over with a big paintbrush. Because in them days, you could paint your own car. Um, yeah. Me and creativity, we, we got to be very good friends quite early on. I did have something to add on to that, but I think it's more important I move on to the, the last bits of questions and I can discuss more with you offline. <laughs> um, what's your most embarrassing moment? But I, don't tell me the full story. I just want to know in four words the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you. So for my most embarrassing moments, the story I have, the four words I would give you in this instance is Club Trickle Key Hill. Song, stage, audience, amnesia. Oh my word, that is horrible. I think there are three people who can experience that in life properly. Musicians, theater actors, and if you have to get up and do a speech and you're trying to do it from your heart, so you learned your notes and you decide to throw the card away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My God, yeah, it is scary and embarrassing. And and when you factor in the truth that it takes minimum a minimum of six hundred hours to make a song, like you hear the song six hundred times in the recording process, to forget it on stage is very special. But it happens. It happens to everybody. There isn't a single musician I know who has not had that experience. Yes. What, forgot your own hit? <laughs> yes. And the audience has to sing it from beginning to end. And you're just standing there like a voyeur in your own life. Like. I have seen the documentaries, yes. All right, can you recommend a book or two that we absolutely must read? It doesn't have to be inspirational. It doesn't have to... It can be Tom and Jerry. It can be whatever. Um, I would say... Don't laugh at me, but The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Hmm. Yeah, sorry. No, don't apologize. That's that that comes up a lot. I have read it. And I read it and, wanting to feel the full impact of it in the way everyone described it. And I read and I didn't it didn't It didn't do anything for you. It didn't quite maybe it's one of those things where because people had talked about it so much, I had built it, it up. Yeah. So by the time I read it, it was I was expecting a lot more than I got. Right. But it's a it's a wonderful book. It's definitely one that a lot of people recommend and for good reason. So yeah, I wouldn't say my, I wouldn't, my, I wouldn't. my second book is um a very old book. It's called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Mm, that comes up a lot too. Because apparently it teaches you about so much more than just war. Yeah. Chess. 
I read I read that when I was nine because my uncle had it and I read it and it has informed my creative and business process even till to this day to this day sorry a bit of pop culture there from seven years ago can you tell us where we can find you your work your brand your everything on this here buhari's interwebs you can find me on instagram you can find me in the pub looking at some you can find me on instagram hkb F-I-N-N. You can find me on Twitter, H-K-B-F-I-N-N. You can find me on Tumblr, H-K-B-F-I-N-N.tumblr.com. Um, you should go to my Tumblr. It's awesome. It's where I leave all my secret, secret stuff. So on Instagram, I post beautiful pictures of beautiful people. On Twitter, I say sardonic and interesting things. But on Tumblr, I vomit. <laughs> I vomit on Tumblr. Some of the things they're like, I should be shot for. Because nobody's, nobody's on Tumblr. No one cares. Like, they left the lights on and just left That's why I love Tumblr. <laughs> Tumblr is the one place that I, I, reserve my, I reserve my time to go on. I have so much fun on just getting lost on Tumblr. There is, it doesn't have any of the pretension of Instagram where you have to, like, stand there and pose and write, you know, mm -hmm. post a thought picture and then underneath you go, yeah, to God be the glory. None of that. On Twitter, no, you have to be there arguing with random people as well over their opinions that you don't care about. None of that. Tumblr is just... Blah, verbal diarrhea yeah. here we come and it's full of the best memes and gift sets oh i love tumblr that you can ever ever come across yes and you're obsessed with cats and tumblr is full of them yeah oh mate i love cats yes um yes sorry did i interrupt you you were telling us where we can find you you left out your mix cloud yes you do you these mixtapes on a weekly basis and you didn't you didn't uh, you didn't drop that i uh, you can find me on mixcloud www.mixcloud.com forward slash HKB underscore FIWN. I have a show on Mixcloud called Freedom Soul Radio, where I play soulful music from across the world. Um, and it's amazing. It's like a two hour show, mm -hmm. um, minimal talk, just nothing but good grooves. Bad tunes. Yes. I will hurt you. When you listen to like this week, my song of the week, I think if I could ever have a song of the week. Um, I played on the show a an a cappella song by Sweet Honey in the Rock. No one even knows who they are. They're like a vocal group from back in the day. And they have a song called The Gift of Love. And it's basically a song about the beauty of sex, but it's they just use metaphor. A cappella for women. Oh, so good. I will share the link to everything is mentioned in show notes below. So just 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 Take your thumb, go and, down and, the phone, uh, yeah, and, and find it. And let's not forget my uh, production company. So justjazzvisuals.com. You can also find some of my short films. There's even a film on there that I, I made a couple of years ago with an unknown actress um, who's never done a podcast in her life. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of my most popular films to date, to this day, to this day. Um, and it's a film about... Two people who live in a city who fall in love with each other via their dreams and they decide to try and meet in real life. It's a beautiful film. And it has a twisted ending. It does. So watch it. It does. Uh, Finn? Starring um, Orica Goddess. They, they don't need to know that. <laughs> As we say. Goddess. Goddess, not Jamaica. She's not good enough. Hey, God pick me ideally. 
You have blessed me in real life. You have blessed me in arts through your work. And every day when I wake up and I get a message from you, whether it's just a line, a picture, a video, no matter what my day is, I'm just like, Finn is alive. The world is good. Spread love. Um, I'm I'm so grateful for that. I'm I'm very sad that we didn't get into some of the questions that I wanted to ask you, purely because, for my own very selfish reasons, there are so many things that Finn has been through. Like I said, this is a man who has lived his his lives have lived lives, and I wanted him to to really, really just share some of that with you in the way that he blesses me with on a constant basis. Like I, I literally learn from him and I appreciate the things that he chooses to share. Um, I apologize if it feels like we were all over the place. I hope we weren't. Um, no, we weren't. We, 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 followed, we followed the moon. We followed the moon, exactly. Followed- you see, you see all these creative people, they'll be saying things like moon, moonshine. Um, we followed his moon today, but I hope yes. by the end of it, it's it's been a good way to guide you i guess uh, it's brought you home Thank you. brought you back to it's yourself it's been a privilege it's been it's been a gift it's been a wonderful experience talking with you is always for some reason you're one of the few people on this planet who can get me to tell the truth about stuff that happened and i'll be sometimes sharing some horrific story and i'm thinking why am i telling her this she doesn't need this but nonetheless is life and that's your gift your gift you're a teller, you're a revealer, you're um, a harmonious spirit here to make the world a better oh. place. So I feel privileged to know That's you. That's very kind. I, I feel the same. Thank you so much. And we didn't even get into the all the trauma and all the the drugs and stuff. And by drugs, I mean, drugs. Yeah, I mean, the time I was, I mean, I, I definitely was on some drugs, but I'll get into that in another episode. Um, mm-hmm. But like I said, I no, hope this is good. No, tell us a little bit about the drugs. This would be the the extra version that we do for like people that subscribe so tell us a little bit about the drugs thing <laughs> well it's Cause, not because when you syndicate it's not exciting later, or sexy like that it's of course there it was is. one time i was on zoloft and i didn't like it so much what's zoloft, zoloft is for like uh what's zoloft in prozac is it prozac prozac yeah okay so it's like a kind of um it's an, it's an emotion. Okay. So there was that. And, and there um, was this one time I went to Amsterdam and I I ate a space cake and... Ooh, child. Let's just say I'm never doing that one again. Well, can I share my drug mm-hmm. story? Because I live a totally ozone-friendly life. I don't take drugs. I don't drink. Um, so once I went to a friend's house and... Um, they had a party the night before. And so he was like, oh, you should, because normally when my friends have parties, I go around to their house the night after and get like old mm-hmm. food because I'm just that guy. So, um, and some of my other friends, they look down at me like, Ew, how can you eat old food? I'm like, that's a day I'm not spending on food. Are you mad? <laughs> of, of course I want Of course I want, I want it. So, so I've gone around to get food and they're like, oh, everything was eaten. But I'm like, I'm hungry. And they're like, I'll just have some of the fruits in the fruit salad. So I fill this pint glass with fruit salad. And I'm like eating it and drinking. And then I do it twice. And then I have three pint glasses of fruit salad. Unbeknownst to me, there's alcohol in the fruit salad. And now I'm drunk, but I don't know I'm drunk. So guess what happens? I'm scared to guess. You know, like nice fin? Not nice Finn, scary Finn comes oh, no. out. Who, who no one knew existed. 
So then I said to my friend, yeah, you need to drive me somewhere. And then he said, I'm not going to drive you. And I literally grappled him, grabbed his shoulder, grabbed his collarbone and flipped him on his back. So I, he did like a, a 180. He like spun in the air, blaps on the floor. And then I put my foot on his neck and I said, we are going to clap him. And he was like, yeah, we are yeah, going. We're we are going. going. <laughs> I want to live. Yeah, I want to live. So then, what? I take my foot off him. We go to the car. He's dry driving. I then stand up in the passenger seat. I open the sunroof and I'm singing and saying crap. We go to this guy's house that I knew. I'm abusive to the guy, his mum, his girlfriend, his friend that was there. I then go back to, I go back to my friend's house that I was staying at the time. And then, mate, I was the most abusive person. Do you and know what I they put in it? The because thing- there's some, there are people I know who they can drink like they can drink you under the table yeah just don't give them dark yes. liquor and there's some who don't give them red wine or you sure. know give them white liquor but just don't give them vodka because there's something about the chemistry of the vodka or they'll do vodka just I don't give it, them tequila was, or sambuca it was it was vodka and rum Eesh, so you mix oh yeah no you weren't gonna survive that mm-mm i was so abusive to everyone i knew i was calling i was calling people up to be abusive and then i fell asleep in, in my own saliva and woke up the next morning like ding wow i'm like yeah that's why i don't drink so that was the one and only time that you accidentally drank something um well i when i was 18 i was upset that my dad didn't give me a birthday present so i drank six tins of this drink called carlsberg special brew that's 7.5 percent or is it nine percent alcohol I then, in a drunken state, after the six cans, convinced my girlfriend and her sister to have intercourse with me. Your girlfriend and her sister. I woke up the next... I'm very convinced. (laughs) I woke up the next day, in between the two of them, and then our lives have been hell ever since. Because the bit they don't tell you about threesomes is some people want more more than others. (laughs) So now I have two sisters who, to my knowledge, don't speak anymore. Oh One of them was oh my, my girlfriend. Gosh. This was after the your repressed sexual thing with the, with yeah, the nineteen heart person. So now I'm trying to not be suppressed. And, and yeah. this is what you do. This is why you need to be repressed, Finn. This is why you need to just stay in your stay in your box. Make films, sir. I am Make done. I am done. I can't. No, it wasn't my 18th. It was my 19th birthday. Sorry, it was my 19th birthday. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, we're going to sign out now. Now, I know I mentioned... Thank you so thank much. Thank you. I'm going to read your list of things that beat disp- depression now. So yes, please. You can. Okay. I'm just reading it. I'm not doing anything fancy. Look at you leaning back like, ooh, yes, let me enjoy this. Re-. I'm not reading re- reading. I'm just reading. I'm just, I'm just glad that you're <laughs> reading. I don't think you understand. You could be reading like... Your, your your list of hatreds right now. <laughs> Middle business. <laughs> it's Orica speaking with her Orica tones. Are you mad? If I was good, good, good. Okay, so in the beginning, I mentioned that I would be sharing something with you that Finn sent to me 15th of September, 2015. And here it goes. At the time, he called it Finn's list of things that beat depression. Cash reserves. Being with kindred spirits. People who did what they said. On time. People who marry you. 
cats that are cute, great books, air conditioning, living in a four-bedroom house in Chiswick, airline tickets to places unseen, a good night's sleep without being eaten, bitten, or harassed by nature's pests, new technology from Apple, dogs who go outside to poo after digging a hole to do it in, weddings where the gift bag is from Dubai. Thank you, Finn. My mother told me that she will buy me a rubber dolly if I was good, good. And now for the Unsullied with Orica Goddess. Get in there.